We're continuing now in our sermon series from the book of Proverbs. Our topic this morning is the topic of anger, and we're going to use Proverbs 14.29 as our leaping off point. So if you'd be interested, you may turn your Bibles there to Proverbs 14.29, and we will be taking a look at that in a moment. <clears throat> Ian, Ian was everything a high school student really shouldn't be. He was socially awkward. He, he walked around with this kind of head down and this little swaying gait, and he never made eye contact with anybody, just kept to himself. If you talked to Ian directly, he, he'd look away and maybe grunt in response. He was as awkward as awkward gets. I'm not aware if there was a diagnosis for him then, but I'm sure he was somewhere on that spectrum of social disorders akin to autism. In addition to his social awkwardness, Ian compounded his, uh, 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 the, the, the manner in which he did not quite fit into high school society was compounded by his poverty. And poverty in and of itself is nothing terrible, but it does not always go well with fellow teenagers. So that his pants never quite fit right, and they were always at least five years out of style, having been purchased at the Salvation Army. His shirts, and I use the plural only in the strictest sense, as I recall, he had only two, but his shirts were rarely clean. I suppose his mother did not have the money to go to the laundromat and wash them. And if that wasn't bad enough, if his social awkwardness and his poverty and the lack of style that it fostered weren't enough for Ian's situation in high school, living among teenagers... It was compounded by the fact that he was Jewish, and he wore his yarmulke, and he didn't eat the pepperoni pizza in the cafeteria that everybody else ate, but pulled out his matzo bread and gefilte fish and such things that teenagers are likely to mock. And so Ian was a target of a great deal of ridicule, of harassment, of bullying. He was the target in our school of much hatred being poured out on him. Until one day in the cafeteria in front of everybody, a couple of would-be bullies began to pick on Ian when Mark and Ken stepped in and put an end to it. And in fact, in a moment, those bullies found themselves laying on the floor looking up at Mark and Ken. And this shocked everybody. You see, Mark and Ken were not known for their anger. They were not known for reacting in violent ways. And in fact, they were known for all the opposite things. They were themselves something of a bit of a couple of geeks, straight-A students, both of them the head of their individual section in the marching band, and both of them members of things like chess club and science club and math club. When you get straight A's and you're the head of your marching band section and you're in the math and science club, you're not exactly ultra cool yourself. But they intervened in that moment and decked those bullies and let it be known from that point forward that Ian would not be harassed. Mark and Ken were a couple of Christian young men in my high school who had a year earlier taken me under their wing to a degree and had done that so that day for Ian. Reacting in anger and in violence, they put an end to the harassment of Ian. Three weeks ago, I was at the General Assembly, and some of the discussion there at the General Assembly got very intense. It got even heated over some of the topics. 
And one of my fellow presbyters went to the microphone, and he was speaking to an issue with a great deal of passion, bordering on anger. And I would argue that his anger was justified, that what he was speaking for and about is something that ought to anger us. It was justified anger. And yet, the moderator of our General Assembly twice stopped him, interrupted him, and warned him that he must speak in dispassionate terms, in dispassionate tones, that that kind of emotion had no place on the floor of our General Assembly. So the anger of the two teenagers, two young Christian men, somehow we know they did the right thing standing up for Ian. But the anger of that pastor at the General Assembly, though I would argue he was justified in why he was angry, it was ruled to be out of place. And by the way, our moderator was right to rule that out of place. So when is anger okay? When is it good? When does anger have a place in our lives? And when is anger unwise, unwarranted, and to be avoided? We need wisdom to guide us to know when anger is appropriate and when it is not. And we saw last week that the book of Proverbs is all about that wisdom. The book of Proverbs is all about the skill necessary to navigate this life and to do it well. God has given us our emotions, and one of those emotions is anger. So how does it fit into our lives? How do we handle this, uh, this attribute from God rightly? How do we live wisely when it comes to anger? Page 13 of the bulletin lists a couple of dozen proverbs that address anger in one way or another, to one degree or another, for one purpose or another. And I would encourage you to look through all of those. We will reference many of them in this sermon. But <clears throat> Proverbs 14.29 is going to be our leaping off point for this sermon. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Let's pray. God, as we seek your wisdom to live rightly these lives that you have granted us, we want to handle our emotions rightly. We want to handle our anger wisely. Let us see the wisdom of your word, and by your spirit apply it to our lives, that we would be beacons of wisdom, that we would be seen as people who live well in this difficult world, and that by that, the name of Jesus would go forth. We pray this in his name. Amen. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding our verse tells us. So we have to ask ourselves, what is anger? What is it that we are to be slow toward? The outline there on page 13 of the bulletin, that is the first point we're going to address. What is anger? And this is fun. I frequently will make reference to the original languages of the Bible and some of the nuances of the words, and this is a fun one. 
because the original Hebrew word behind this literally means nose. It literally means nose. How is that connected to anger? How do they go from your nose to a translation of anger? And by the way, all the translations have it as anger. None of them have the word nose there. It's not like the translators of this version got it wrong and all the others have said, well, it really is nose there. It isn't. It's anger. So what's going on? We'll come back around to that in a moment. First, let's look at some other aspects of anger. If I ask you to define anger, my guess is you're going to struggle more than you realize. You're going to say, well, okay, you know, it's, so anger is, you know, it's, uh, it's being angry. And you're like, well, yeah, well, you can't use a word to define itself, can you? And you're like, well, okay, you're right, Pastor. So it's, uh, ang- ang- it's, it's when you're mad. So when you're insane, when you've lost your mind, well, no, not that kind of mad. You know, it's mad, it's like, anger. You're making me angry, asking me to define anger. It's something we know what it is, we know it when we see it, but it turns out to be actually fairly tough to define. So I went to some of the so-called experts, some of the supposed experts in our society. Start with a simple, straightforward dictionary.com. Here's their definition. A strong feeling of displeasure and belligerence aroused by a wrong. Okay, a strong feeling. Yeah, most of us know that anger is, there's a power to that emotion that maybe there isn't to some of the others. A strong feeling of displeasure and belligerence aroused by a wrong. Here's from the American Psychological Association, a group that's supposed to be, you know how to deal with human emotions. Yeah, I'm just going to say that and move on. Um, an emotion characterized by antagonism towards someone or something you feel has deliberately done you wrong. A little nuance there. The first one says that a wrong was done. The second one says that maybe you feel there was a wrong done. I think most of us realize we've gotten angry at times. It turns out nothing was really, no wrong was really done to us. We got angry for no good reason. So that nuance is probably pretty good. An emotion characterized by antagonism towards someone or something you feel has deliberately done you wrong. Psychology Today, the magazine, offers this. Anger is one of the basic human emotions. Anger is related to the fight, flight, or freeze response of the sympathetic nervous system. It prepares humans to fight. And I really thought of all the definitions I came across, that one probably gives us the most value when we go to use it. We go to think about anger, begin to put it into our place in our lives. That one gives us something to grab a hold of. Anger is that emotion which prepares you to fight. Fear can lead to, you know, um, if, if there's a close call on the highway, fear can lead to hitting the brakes and trying to get clear of the situation. Anger leads to stepping on the gas and catching up to, so you can... Uh, uh, express your displeasure with that person. Um, If there's a disparaging comment, wisdom says, uh, uh, maybe they didn't mean it that way, but anger says, I'm going to get them for this. It looks for a fight. Which brings us back around to the Hebrew word, 
knows. You see what's going on there is that we've got this sense of what happens when you get ready for a fight. The nostrils flare. You need to suck in more oxygen because that adrenaline begins to pump and you're ready to fight. Whether it's fighting with your fist or with your words, you're ready to go physically. You see, the reason I said that last definition probably is the most useful for us is because I think it also connects most closely to the biblical word. The reason the word for knows is also the word for anger is because of the way it affects us physically. Our nostrils flare. Our face takes on a new look. We can tell just by looking at somebody that they're angry. I'm going to propose this. Anger is a powerful emotional response to a perceived wrong that is inclined toward a fight. Anger is an emotional response to a perceived wrong that is inclined toward a fight. A perceived wrong, it can be accurately perceived or inaccurately perceived. I'm not saying you weren't wronged. You perceived a wrong. You may have perceived it correctly. You may have actually been wronged. Well, you may have perceived it incorrectly. There was no harm actually done. And I said inclined to a fight. Not all anger ends in a clash. Not all anger ends in a fight. But it is inclined in that direction. Anger is a powerful emotional response to a perceived wrong that is inclined toward a fight. Anger is the emotional preparation to fight in response to something wrong. So then... Why is most anger unwise? It's our second point in our outline. If anger is this emotional response to a wrong, then why can anger itself be wrong? Why is it unwise? Let's look at a few of those supporting texts. They're listed there on on page 13, so I'm going to kind of go through these fairly quickly. You can look at them more closely later. Proverbs 12, 16 says this, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Anger gives away what's in your head. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores it and lets it go. When you get angry at that situation, you are giving away what's going on inside of you to a person who is probably not a friend anyway. There's probably not a close confidant. They probably don't, shouldn't have access to that inner emotional life that you've got, that you that is yours and belongs to you and God and to your closest friends. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs 14, 16 and 17. One who is wise is cautious, but a fool is reckless and careless. Now listen to this. A fool is reckless and careless. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. If you take either verse by itself, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you take the two together, a fool is reckless and careless. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. Anger is going to lead you to act badly. Even if the anger itself isn't necessarily wrong, anger can lead to rash, imprudent behaviors. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. There we see it again. The anger leads to 
unwise behaviors in the context of the situation. Just as we in the church are called to live in unity and peace with one another, so the same was true of the people of Israel. It's in the Old Testament we find the verse that says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's Psalm 133.1. That's in the Old Testament. Anger destroys that unity. It destroys that affection. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Anger, given as it is to fight, does not tend to foster unity and peace. Proverbs 16.32, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Think about that. The proverb is saying, basically, if you're in control of your own temperament, if you can keep control of your own anger, you are actually better than the conqueror of a city. Well, how is that? The conqueror of a city spends the rest of his time desperately trying to hold on to that city. Unable to control every little thing that happens, unable to control what's going on in that secret meeting over there, what rebellion is being planned there, what mutiny is underway over here, he's constantly worried, constantly fighting to hold on to the power he has. And the Word of God says, if you just control your temper, you're in better shape than that guy. Because by controlling your temper, you now have control of so much of your being. And you're not going to act unwisely. Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. When you lose control, when you lose your self-control, when you lose your temper, when you get angry in a rash way, you're like a city without walls. You know, the dispassionate man in the previous proverb, he was able, he was more powerful than a conqueror. But the angry man in this proverb is portrayed as a city that is defenseless. Proverbs 29, 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Again, anger produces a bad outcome, not a good one. At the heart of these, when you take all of these together and many other passages, what you see in anger is that it generally produces unwise, rash actions. The prudent ignores an insult. A fool is reckless and careless, but a man of quick temper acts foolishly. He was slow to anger, quiets contention. The man without self-control is like a city without walls. Anger is a problem. It is unwise because it tends to lead to rash behavior. Behavior that has not been thought through, that has not been carefully considered. Now, we've got to remember, always when we're dealing with the Proverbs, I'm going to try and remind you this almost weekly if I can remember to remind you, Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs do not come to us with mathematical certainty. Two plus two always equals four. But anger does not always lead to an unwise outcome. The Proverbs deal in generalities, the way the world usually works by God's design, and the effects of the fall. And so we have to be careful. We can't sit here and say that anger is always an unwise thing. This is why we look at Mark and Ken and the way they stood up for Ian and defended him, even though they behaved 
in anger and with some violence, nevertheless, they probably did what was right. And yet the deliberations of our church's highest court, the General Assembly, anger, even if it's righteous anger, can't be part of the discussion. A court needs to consider things in a dispassionate way. A court needs to consider things in a cool, level-headed way to arrive at the right decision, to judge with wisdom. So while this pastor was understandably upset about what he was addressing, it was the context in which he was addressing it that was out of place as the court of the church. Anger is generally unwise because it tends to lead to rash, unhelpful actions. And the, the, uh, 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 the reason anger is unwise, uh, sorry, sorry, I just said that, didn't I? Well, I lost my place. Oh, that's why. Moving on, sorry about that. Now, I could get anger, angry about that, but I won't. We'll move on. The third point, what is righteous anger? I said a moment ago that this pastor at the General Assembly, I would argue, was right to be angry about the issue before us. It was the context that was wrong. So what is righteous anger? All four Gospels record... By the way, there's not that much that all four Gospels record, but here's one of them. This is John's version from chapter 2, 13 through 15. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins and of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, the word anger isn't there, but is there any doubt that Jesus was angry? All of that is the language of anger, of hostility, of violence. Jesus was angry about what was going on in the temple. Mark 3, we read this. Again, uh, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, that is the Pharisees and the scribes, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. On this occasion, we're explicitly told that Jesus was angry at the reaction of those in the synagogue where he was teaching. Mark 10, verses 13 to 16 record this, and they were bringing children to him, to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Go look up the word indignant. It is almost exactly the same definition as the word angry. He was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And I would suggest here that we begin to see the pattern that's developing. It's when people hinder other people from coming to God that we begin to see Jesus angry. What was going on in the temple angered him because it wasn't fostering people going to God. 
what was happening in the synagogue wasn't fostering the, the layer, all the rules about the Sabbath wasn't fostering people going to God. And here his own disciples had given in to that mindset and were quick to keep children away from God. Matthew 23, uh, there's an extended, I won't read all of this because it's quite long, but there's an extended um, diatribe, harangue by Jesus here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. Moving down a few verses. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. And he goes on to comment. Moving down a bit. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And then he goes on to say, but all the terrible things you do also. And then in verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He's angry. The pronouncement of woe, woe to me is not necessarily anger. Woe to me is an expression of frustration or, or discouragement in the situation. But the pronouncement of woe on another is a pronouncement of a curse. He's angry. Why? Well, if we go back to the top of that passage, to the first verse, we read this. Jesus is angry at the scribes and the Pharisees because, in his words, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Again, they were getting in the way of people coming to God. And then in John 11, I won't read it, I'll just remind you of the story. We have the death of Jesus' friend Lazarus. And a couple of interesting things happen in there. As Jesus comes to the tomb in John eleven thirty five, John records that Jesus wept. Why is Jesus weeping? Is it because, remember, remember, and we know what it isn't. It isn't because he missed Lazarus. Because John records, that's what all the people who didn't understand, all the Jewish leadership, that's why they assumed he was weeping. John tells us, and they thought it was because. And his point was, that's not why it was. He wasn't weeping because he missed Lazarus. He already knew he was going to raise Lazarus. Why is he weeping? He's weeping because of his own anger at the condition under which mankind finds itself. Under the the curse of sin. Under the penalty of God. He's not angry at God for that. He knows the justice of God. But nevertheless, he is still angry that people are suffering because of sin. A few verses later, we, in the same passage, we read that Jesus was deeply moved. What you've got going on there, we all have been at this point. At some point in your life, some of you are, got to wisdom early on in life, and maybe this hasn't happened since your childhood. But at some point in your life, you have been so angry that it spilled out in tears. Jesus was angry at the condition under which man was living. 
but he was prepared to do something about it. So righteous anger then, we might be willing to say, is this. It's an emotional fight response. We said anger was that emotional response preparing us to fight. So righteous anger must be the emotional response preparing us to fight against evil and godlessness. Except that we've got some other illustrations from Jesus' life. Matthew 26 While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, good job, well done. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take Uh, The sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, if I were angry about what was happening in this moment, if I wanted violence to stop the wrong being done to me, and it was wrong, I could stop it, Peter. You know, it was Jesus that taught his followers to turn the other cheek. And it was Peter, that sword-pulling disciple, who learned his lesson and later went on and wrote this, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And as we read in our New Testament Reading this morning, Paul is quick to tell the Christians in Rome, Christians who were suffering much more wrong than you and I have ever suffered, Christians who were under a great deal more uh, uh, evil than you and I have ever been under, he says to them, do not take vengeance. Do not try to make it right. Do not take it upon yourself to fix the situation. If righteous anger is simply lashing out against sin and evil and wickedness, then Jesus wouldn't have said, don't turn the other cheek. If righteous anger were simply lashing out against that which is wrong, then Paul would not have told the Christians in Rome, leave it to God. He would have said, rise up and take control and fix it. If righteous anger were only about correcting the harm done, then Peter would have said to the persecuted Christians that he, to whom he wrote, stand up for your rights and fix it. Something is going on. Clearly Jesus gets angry. Clearly Jesus intervenes to deal with evil and wickedness. And yet he also teaches us not to at times. So how do we pull this together? And that is our fourth and final point of our outline this morning. What is anger's place in our lives? Well, for starters, I'm going to tell you, as we saw last week, as we're going to see over and over again, so much of the Proverbs, so much of the wisdom of God is handling it in context. 
It's not a flat statement that applies to every situation. You see, Ken and Mark were right to stand up for Ian. But the anger in our general assembly, the court of our church, was wrong because of the context. As a general rule, if it's self-serving anger, it's probably wrong. And don't just give it a different name. Remember the wisdom of Shakespeare. A rose by any other name will still smell as sweet. Or let me turn it around. Anger by any other name will still stink. You can call it frustration, but it's probably anger. You can call it impatience, but it's probably anger. You can rename it all you want, but it's probably anger. You probably want to fight over some perceived wrong done to you. But the pattern we see in the scriptures is as a general rule, the wrong done to you is not where anger is justified. It's not where anger is wise. Wisdom there says, you know, the the, the wise man lets the insult go, we read. Don't do anything about it. But when your anger is in defense of another, and more than that, in all likelihood, if it costs you something in defense of another, in defense of another who is being wronged, it's probably righteous anger. Road rage, because you were cut off, because you didn't get the lane you wanted, because you didn't get the spot in the line you wanted. Road rage is not wise anger. But when you see road rage lead to a collision, and you'd rather do anything but stay, in your anger, you say, this isn't going to play out well. That poor teenage driver over there, she's going to get blamed, but it wasn't her fault. And the man in the suit and tie is going to talk his way into the police, and it's, this isn't right. And I don't have time for this, but I'm going to stay anyway to make sure justice is done. That's probably righteous anger. I'm going to make sure she doesn't get blamed for an accident that wasn't her fault. I saw it. When your anger puts you on the war path against a sister who has hurt your feelings, it's wrong. Let it go. Love covers over a multitude of sins. But if your anger is directed at a sister being held in sexual slavery, being trafficked for the perverse pleasure of other human beings, how could you not be angry at that? How can we not be outraged at those sorts of things? How are we not furious about them? And we have to recognize the problem with anger, the problem, this is why anger has to be under our control, not controlling us. Because too often, our emotions don't lead to right thinking. We need to think rightly and let our emotions flow out of that. So we have to recognize that while the Supreme Court decision a few weeks ago to overturn uh, Roe 
was good. It wasn't great. They didn't actually come out and say killing babies is wrong. They didn't actually come out and say the life of a human is guarded by our Constitution and therefore shall not be taken under any circumstances. That's not what they said. They just said, eh, some states can kill babies and others can't. Are we okay with that? How are we not angry about that? How are we not angry about women and children being put into semi-trucks and lugged across the desert so that they can be sold into modern slavery? How are we not angry about the perversion of our court systems in certain cases and certain places for the good of the powerful against the weak? When anger serves yourself or the people you like or your party or your group, whatever you're a part of, it's probably unwise anger. But when anger is against, when it prepares you to fight, to stand up for the oppressed, the weak, those who cannot help themselves, those who cannot defend themselves, when your anger prepares you to fight evil in this world at great cost to yourself, then it might very well be righteous anger. You see, anger is an emotion given by God, but it's an emotion affected by the fall. Controlled, it can prompt us to fight evil. Uncontrolled, it leads to folly. Thus, anger, like every other thought, must be taken captive and brought into obedience under Christ, in whom we saw anger at its holy best. Let's pray. God, give us wisdom to handle this powerful emotion well, to do it wisely, to burn with anger at the things that anger you, to be outraged at injustice, to be outraged at, at inhumanity toward your, the image bearers of your likeness. But let us also be quick to let an insult go, quick to cover over a, a wrong done us, quick to let go of a harm that we perceive, let this emotion not serve ourselves, but the glory of your name, in whom we pray. Amen.